0: If society collapsed overnight and life as you knew it was gone forever, what would you miss? For me, so many things I so easily take for granted, like the ability to drive a car and the ease of traveling anywhere I'd like to on developed infrastructures of highways and roads. I'd miss how the simple flick of a switch floods a room with light. I'd miss the easy delights like coffee with cream, well-crafted bourbon, or even the sweet, sugary taste of an orange Julius. I'd miss so many of the modern marvels we witness constantly, but usually never think twice about, like planes approaching their landing on an overcast day, barreling through clouds like leviathans in the sky. Our world is filled with so many things that astound with their complexity, and yet at times, life can still feel stale. If that's something you felt, Station 11 is the remedy, because it's a novel that invites us to look afresh upon the wonders that surround us, and to see that if life feels stale, perhaps the origins of that staleness lie elsewhere. It's a gripping novel, beautiful with rapid pacing and haunting in its approximation of what might have been, or even what one day might still be, what the world lived through. In the end, The question the novel surfaces more than any other rises on the heels of this refrain. Survival is insufficient. If so, the question is, what makes up the difference? Survival plus what? Welcome to the From Argyle Street Podcast, where we're breaking down one great work of fiction at a time. I'm your host, Trevor Lovell, and today we are looking into the novel Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. All right, story recap, let's jump into it. The book is organized into nine sections with the opening section introducing the pandemic and then the following sections alternating with pre and post pandemic narration, kind of loosely. So here's a quick flyover of the nine sections. Number one, the theater. Arthur Leander dies during the opening performance of King Lear in Toronto. We're introduced to each main character through his death as each one of them is connected to him. Jeevan, an EMT in training, rushes the stage trying to save his life. Kirsten is just a child acting in the same play. Clark, Arthur's old friend, is notified of his death, and Clark then notifies Miranda and Elizabeth, two of Arthur's ex-wives who play into the story. As the reader meets these characters, the Georgia flu runs rampant in Toronto and the world over, and society's collapse has already begun. Section 2. A Midsummer Night's Dream. 20 years later, the narrative continues. The traveling symphony is introduced and explained, which Kirsten belongs to. They enter St. Deborah by the Water, a small town in lower Michigan, and learn that things have changed drastically in this formerly safe small town. A prophet has arrived, and nothing seems quite right. After their performance, they leave in a hurry. Section 3. I prefer you with a crown. Pre pandemic, the story of Arthur Leander's first marriage to Miranda is relayed. How they meet, how the romance develops, and how it all falls apart. Also, we learn more about Miranda's artistic project, a graphic novel titled Station 11. Section 4 The Starship. The Traveling Symphony discovers a little girl from St. Deborah by the Water that escaped the town by stowing away in one of their vehicles. Not long after, two members of the troupe who were assigned to guard duty go missing. Then another disappears also. It seems they are being hunted. Then, while Kirsten and August are fishing, the entire troop vanishes. They decide to make for the last agreed upon destination, Severn City, home to the Museum of Civilization. Section 5, Toronto. More of Jeevan's story is shared here, which primarily centers on his experience just after society's collapse. Section six, the airplanes. This section presents more of Miranda's story, in particular her death in Malaysia from the very flu that causes the society's collapse. Uh, Section seven, the terminal. Clark's story is central here as the narrative follows everything that unfolds at the Severn City Airport following the pandemic's arrival. Elizabeth and Tyler are present here too. This is where the identity of the prophet is first revealed with certainty. The prophet is Tyler, Arthur Leander's very own son. All right, so just kind of a quick word on the structure. In sections one through four, you're getting really introduced into all of the different characters. The tensions are rising uh, as things get worse and worse with the troop. Then at the end of section four, the entire troupe vanishes, and you're left wondering, with Kirsten and August, what on earth happened? Then it moves into these middle sections of 5, 6, and 7 that all center on really pre-pandemic reflection, diving deeper into the stories of these different characters. First Jeevan, then Miranda, and then finally Clark. Clark's story is wound up with the identity of the Prophet and if there's any point in the book where the pacing gets a little bit frustrating it's probably in these three and in particular the seventh one because section four ends on a cliffhanger and then you have to go through all of these all this reflection and this kind of extended narrative to figure out uh what actually has taken place so sections five six and seven are sort of a breakup in the narrative as the cliffhanger remains unresolved and then you come into the last two sections eight and 9 that bring both the tension to a resolution and the story to a close so section 8 the prophet finally after three chapters uh, chapters of deeper exposition the tension mounts to its highest heights the fate of the vanished symphony is revealed and kirsten comes face to face with the prophet in a completely powerless position yet still she emerges victorious and survives Afterwards, she reconnects with the Traveling Symphony at the Severn City Airport, where she meets Clark. Uh, section 9, Station 11. The novel closes with a few quick resolutions. One final dip is taken into Arthur's life, his final hours, and the introspection that marked his thoughts as he unknowingly drew near to the end. Uh, and then the Traveling Symphony, reunited and safe once more, leaves Severn City to continue its typical route and Clark looks over the graphic novel, Station Eleven, and considers people he knew long ago. And that is how the the novel comes to a close. Now, an interpretation. Survival is insufficient. Survival is insufficient. This mantra is painted on the side of one vehicle within the traveling symphony's caravan of vehicles, and it's the refrain the characters themselves within the symphony cling to most. It's the conviction, the value, the belief that undergirds their entire commitment to their way of life, never settling anywhere, constantly traveling and performing so they can practice and offer their art in this new and broken world. The logic spells itself out pretty simply about why this is such a conviction for them. The pandemic removed 99% of the world's population within the span of a few weeks. Therefore society essentially collapsed overnight. After such a devastating occurrence, the first several years were marked purely by a struggle to survive. Survival alone was everything. But as the years continued to pass and circumstances stabilized, life began to feel stiff and stale once more. So the conviction was born that a life oriented entirely around survival isn't a life worth living. Survival is insufficient. For life to matter, there must be more. The novel centers directly on that pursuit of more. And for many of the characters, it's found in their art. That's the whole ethos of the traveling symphony. They travel constantly, living this nomadic life so they can practice their art. That, in connection with a community of people who are committed to the very same thing, is what makes up the difference for them. During other sections, the narrator draws back the curtain on the lives of characters before the pandemic—people who, in the eyes of many, seemed to be successful and yet could be described as sleepwalking. Their lives aren't oriented around survival in the slightest—it's not even a thought that occurs—yet their lives are anything but sufficient. For example, (laughs) Arthur, as a famous actor, is a successful artist, yet he seems unhappy in his personal life is a mess uh, and just consists really of a string of relational failure after relational failure. As a CEO whisperer, Clark's career is also in great shape, but he seems to be asleep at the wheel. In fact, he finds far more satisfaction from curating the museum post-pandemic than he ever does from his high-status, well-paying career before. And before the pandemic, Jeevan seems entirely unable to locate a purpose or direction for his life, he just seems lost in the modern world, and Miranda is the only one who seems satisfied with life, primarily because of her graphic novel, Project Station Eleven, but her life also strays far from perfect and seems lonely at times. The emptiness and dissatisfaction that mark so many of their pre-pandemic lives poses the question to us, is your life sufficient, and if not, what would make it so? At first glance, art seems to be the novel's answer, however, a closer delve into the narratives of characters on both sides of the pandemic seems to express something else. Art can be that which adds meaning to life, but it doesn't have to be. For example, pre-pandemic, Jeevan is lost, but post-pandemic, his life actually improves. He marries, starts a family, and finds purpose in becoming a healer, a doctor, within his local community. The primary difference between Clark and Jeevan is that pre-pandemic, Clark seems successful, yet his life was really and truly empty. Post-pandemic, he finds community at the Severn City Airport and purpose in his curation of the Museum of Civilization, and when it comes to Kirsten, she finds these same elements within the traveling symphony, relationships and work that infuse life with meaning. Her work as an actress just happens to align with the more narrow understanding of what constitutes art. Post-pandemic, survival becomes more difficult for sure, but their lives are still full and enriching as they locate these elements, relationships, and work. Survival is insufficient. However, if the novel offers an answer as to what makes up the difference, it seems to have less to do with art And more with cultivating meaningful relationships and work. A sense of both belonging and purpose that are wrapped within each other. Or to put it in mathematical terms, survival equals insufficient. So survival plus X equals sufficient. And X equals belonging plus purpose. Therefore, survival plus belonging plus purpose equals a meaningful, sufficient life. That is what the novel offers to each of us. Closing thoughts. Just a few closing thoughts I have here on the temptation of Christ and the relationship that it has to this novel. An interesting story about Jesus is recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's the story of Jesus' temptation. The events follow immediately after his baptism in the Jordan River, where he's led into the desert wilderness uh, to fast for 40 days. Throughout this period, he's tempted by the devil. Now, surely there are some knots to untangle when it comes to discussing the plausibility of the devil's existence. And there's actually some deeper things happening within this narrative as well that connect to uh, some of the Old Testament narratives from the history of the people of Israel. But for our sake here, I'd like to just focus on the exchange, the conversation between them itself. In the narrative, the devil tempts Jesus three times, attempting to persuade him into doing something that would render his death on a cross meaningless, something that would strip him of his ability to save humanity. In the first test, as recorded in Luke's Gospel, the devil says the following, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Remember, Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days, so this man was hungry. But more than that, his body needed sustenance, and if he was the Son of God, this was well within his ability to do, to turn a stone into bread. Yet he responds by saying the following, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Paraphrase, survival is insufficient. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the passage he's quoting from refers to the 40 years the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness. Throughout those 40 years in the desert, God provided their food in an especially miraculous manner through manna. These 40 years served a purpose to teach the Israelites to shape an understanding, to form the conviction within the fibers of their being that survival is insufficient. Bread alone is not enough because survival alone isn't either. Jesus's quote therefore says more than what's obvious at first that the fullness of life that is sufficiency felt in the marrow of our bones can only be located in a relationship with God. And so often when facing the novel's question of what makes up the difference, what makes a meaningful sufficient life, we turn to so many answers like career and passion, art, marriage, family, community, so many answers that are so good, yet still, they seem to fall insufficient. If Jesus' understanding of human nature is correct, then this will always be so. Because even if we attain all of these things, we'll still always be falling short of what we were truly made for. Survival is insufficient, because man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word. That comes from the mouth of God, because we are made for Him.